Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, the executive director of the New York City Fire Museum, the official museum of the FDNY. Before we start this episode, I want to remind you that you can listen to all of the past episodes of Throwback FDNY by going to our website at www.nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny and choosing the digital platform you use for listening to podcasts. Each show has three segments going back in time about FDNY history. Now let's start this month's show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, Chief Joseph Martin earns his famous nickname at a fire in 1899. One happy story emerges from a fatal fire in 1946, and an aircraft carrier burns at the Brooklyn Navy Yard in 1960. Joseph Martin was born in New York City one year after the start of the Civil War. He grew up on East 13th Street. On January 18, 1884, he was appointed to the fire department of the city of New York. Among his fellow firefighters, he was unique, having attended two years at City College. He studied, took promotional exams, and on November 19, 1899, he was made a lieutenant. He continued to be promoted throughout his career, attaining his highest rank as assistant chief of department in 1919. Chief Martin was well known for getting into the fray. In 1922, he responded from his Manhattan quarters out to Arfern on the Rockaway Peninsula, where the entire summer resort town was in flames. He took the fire to a fifth alarm, often taking the hose line himself. In one of the city's most unusual places, known as the Greenwich Village Volcano, Chief Martin was literally blown through the door of a building by one of the explosions. When Mayor Hyland asked the chief how he felt, Martin said fine, only to crumble unconscious at the mayor's feet. He refused Dr. Archer's plea to go home. Instead, he commanded the fire from a stretcher placed in the window of an undertaker's shop across the street. On April 16, 1930, at the age of 66, he was so exhausted at a three-alarm fire on East 33rd Street that he collapsed. Again, Dr. Archer wanted him to go to the hospital, but he refused and continued to command the fire from a stretcher. The next day, he was designated disabled by Chief Medical Officer Joseph Smith, leading to his eventual retirement as of November 1st that year. He died on October 25th, 1941. But it was at a fire in a warehouse at Hubert and West Streets that secured Joe Martin's place in history. As captain of Engine 31, he and his company responded to a warehouse fire seated in the building's cellar. At a time long before breathing apparatus, Martin and his company fought vigorously with member after member retreating due to the intense smoke and heat. Martin stayed in place at the nozzle. Chief Croker, realizing the futility of the attack, ordered all members out of the building. But Captain Martin did not leave the knob. So Croker went in after him and forcing him to leave, introduced the captain to reporters by saying, gentlemen, this is Smokey Joe Martin. And the name stuck. Three years after Martin's passing, the U.S. Forest Service developed the Cooperative Forest Fire Prevention Program and asked artist Albert Stahl, a noted illustrator of animals, to create a character for the program. His poster of a bear became the hallmark of the new campaign. And although exactly who named the bear is not known, what is known is that he was named Smokey after FDNY's famous late chief, Smokey Joe Martin. Hello, everyone. I'm Ted Grant, president of the Board of Trustees of the New York City Fire Museum. As we come to the close of another very difficult year, I want to appeal to you for your support. 
With your help, we have been coming back since reopening in September 2020 after our pandemic shutdown. But we are not out of the woods yet, for sure. Tourism is still far from what it used to be. School children are not taking class trips and large groups are not holding as many meetings as before, all of which impacts our bottom line. The museum does not receive financial support from the FDNY or the FDNY Foundation. We are still struggling to keep our doors open, but make no mistake about it, as a museum for the largest fire department in the United States and the most respected in the world, we are committed to making its history available to everyone. Please help us by visiting our website and making a contribution and perhaps becoming a member. Visit www.nycfiremuseum.org and click on the support tab to show that you too want to help us preserve, educate, and celebrate the history, tradition, and fire safety programs of the FDNY. Thank you and stay safe. It was a cold night on December 11th, 1946, when a fire broke out at the abandoned Knickerbocker Ice Plant in the Washington Heights neighborhood of Manhattan. The company was in the business of making ice at a time when many homes had large blocks of ice delivered to them to store perishable items. Shortly before midnight, a tenant in the neighboring building smelled and saw heavy smoke. He ran to the closest street fire alarm box and turned in an alarm. Arriving units found a well-advanced fire in the barn-like ice storage room, extending to the cockloft, the space between the ceiling and the concrete roof, which was 60 feet above the large open floor area. Firefighters had to attempt to fight the blaze from above. Heavy steel beams made the large open area possible, but as the flames raged, the beams became hot and began to expand with no place to go. Suddenly, a 65-foot-high, 100-foot-long bearing wall gave way and collapsed. All but one of the firefighters on the roof escaped to safety, but firefighter Frank Moorhead Jr. of Engine 93 perished. If that wasn't bad enough, the collapsed wall fell on the adjoining tenement house, where on this cold night, many residents were still inside, some of them even sleeping through the calamity next door. Now, a major search and rescue operation had to be mounted to extricate the estimated 60 people in the building. In an unusual move, a call went out for firefighters only, with each of the FDNY's 14 divisions sending one member to assist in the search. Firefighters operated at the scene for three days. In the end, 37 civilians and one firefighter lost their lives in the fire and collapse. But here is one positive story to come from this tragedy. One family in the building was named the Poppers. The family of five, mother, father, and three young children, were all asleep when the collapse occurred. The 10-year-old boy, A. Joseph Popper, was in the top bunk of the bed he shared with his brother. The bed collapsed and killed the young man below. The other members of the family were crushed by falling debris. About nine hours after the collapse, a firefighter found Joseph and pulled him from the rubble. He was the only member of his family to survive. But what makes this story more moving is that as a result of his traumatic experience and his admiration for the members of the FDNY that worked tirelessly for so long to save him and many others, he joined the FDNY on March 30th, 1960. When he did, he visited the office of the department's magazine, WNYF, to see if they could help him locate the firefighter that rescued him 14 years before. The magazine wrote his story in a brief article called The Last of the Poppers, a nickname that soon affixed itself to Joseph. As a result of the WNYF article, Joseph was reunited with his rescuer, Battalion Chief Neil Kinnick, who stepped forward. 
After a successful 23-year career with the FDNY, Lieutenant A. Joseph Popper retired from Ladder Company 79. He passed away last year. But his story will long be recorded in the annals of FDNY history. The New York City Fire Museum shop offers a wide selection of museum souvenirs and FDNY licensed products. To acknowledge the 20th anniversary of the tragic events of September 11, 2001, and the 343 members of the FDNY who gave their lives that day, we are offering several commemorative items, including a Maltese cross decal and lapel pin, a 9-11 Memorial Challenge coin, and a beautiful, high-quality 343 t-shirt. Proceeds from all sales help fulfill our mission to preserve, educate, and celebrate, and to remember the brave men and women of the FDNY, not just on September 11th, but every day. You can make purchases at the museum or online by visiting our website, www.nycfiremuseum.org forward slash shop. Many people know of the Brooklyn Navy Yard on the shore of Wallabout Bay, but few realize what a major facility it once was or how long it has been there. Of the thousands of Navy ships that docked there during its 165-year history, one challenged the FDNY with one of the most complex fires it had to fight. The facility was purchased by the federal government in 1801 and went into operation as an active shipyard for the Navy five years later. Naval vessels were not only repaired or retrofitted, many were actually built there. The base even had its own fire department from the 1800s right up until its closure. One of the ships constructed in Brooklyn was the aircraft carrier USS Constellation. It was classified as a supercarrier and was over 1,000 feet in length and 280 feet wide. While still under construction, the driver of a forklift on the hangar deck was moving a large waste bin when he pushed it into a steel plate that then severed a plug on a 1,200-gallon tank of diesel fuel. The shipping at an angle towards its stern permitted the diesel to flow out freely. Somehow, that fuel ignited, and the flames traveled to all of the spilled oil, spreading fire to many pieces of the construction material, equipment, and supplies throughout large areas of the vessel. FDNY received the initial alarm at 10.30 a.m. on December 19, 1960. Within 30 minutes, the conflagration was raised to a full fifth alarm. The flames had spread throughout the forward half of the hangar deck and the four decks above, all the way up to the flight deck. One account claimed that the flight deck looked like an entire lumberyard ablaze. At 1.26 p.m., the chief of department transmitted a second alarm from Manhattan companies with instructions to respond to the Brooklyn fire. 30 minutes later, that was upgraded to a fifth alarm, effectively bringing the response to 10 alarms. At the time of the fire, there were 3,200 workers aboard the ship. Given the rapid movement of the fire, many sought the quickest escape, which for some meant jumping overboard into the water, while others slid down mooring lines to the dock. But a vast majority of the men were in areas of the vessel that did not have an exit, either off the ship or through an area not already in flames. They were trapped. Clearly, this was not only a logistical nightmare from an extinguishment standpoint, it also presented incredible risk to life for both the workers as well as for the firefighters. The acts of bravery the rescue of these men required resulted in the award of three Valor Medals to members of Rescue Companies 1 and 2. Four of the department's five rescue companies were called in and operated at the Navy Yard. Sadly, 50 people lost their lives in the fire, and over 300, including firefighters, were injured. Nearly 600 FDNY members, including 100 probationary firefighters that were brought in from the academy, went to work at the Constellation Fire. They operated 65 hose lines during the 12 hours it took to bring the Inferno under control. The ship was commissioned in October of the following year, 
and remained in the fleet until 2003. At the time, and until September 11, 2001, this was the largest combined firefighting and rescue operation ever mounted by the FDNY. And as a side note, this fire occurred just three days after the mid-air collision of two passenger planes, with one of those planes crashing in flames not too far away from the Navy Yard. In fact, 15 of the companies that were at the crash also went to work at the ship fire, with one, Rescue Company 2, still at the crash site when they were dispatched to the Navy Yard. December 1960 is considered by many to be the most significant and unusual series of alarms and responses to be handled by the FDNY. And now it's time for our throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. What protege of President Abraham Lincoln traveled to New York City to recruit New York firefighters to form a regiment during the American Civil War? The answer can be found in our last episode. Remember, you can listen to that and all our previous episodes by going to www.nycfiremuseum.org slash throwback FDNY. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoy these podcasts as much as we enjoy producing them for you. On behalf of our producers, Joe Malvasio, Pascal Etienne, Reed Periner, and Kristen Eng, we wish you the happiest of New Year's and look forward to delivering more stories that bring the extraordinary history and unique heritage of the FDNY to life. The Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you with help from the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official nonprofit organization of the department. A thank you to Fire Commissioner Daniel A. Nigro and Chief of Department Thomas Richardson for their unwavering support. Also to the Chairman of the FDNY Foundation Board of Directors, Steve Rousseau, and the Executive Director, Gene O'Shea. Thank you to the New York City Fire Museum Board of Trustees, our staff, volunteers, and of course, our museum members. In 2022, resolve to come visit us at the New York City Fire Museum. We're located at 278 Spring Street, between Varick and Hudson Streets in Manhattan, and consider becoming one of our museum members. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this important message one final time in 2021. With the cold winter months upon us, remember to place space heaters at least three feet away from combustible materials, such as blankets, curtains, and newspapers that can easily catch fire. And do not leave space heaters unattended. We can all do our part to be a partner with the fire department by promoting fire safety. Thank you and be safe.